Look, this, this text is a text about what's called soteriology. How is it that a person becomes saved? How is it that a person enters from death to life, from, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? And, and this guy comes in like, it's an answer to a question. I think I already know maybe the answer. And I'm going to want you to just you know confirm maybe for me what I think. But he definitely is not coming um, weak or unsure. He's, it's knowledge that he seeks, right? At least that's what it appears. Now, it is important to remember the context in which this occurs. We've already had a story about, Jesus has already just told a story about a banquet where people put themselves too close to the host and have to be told to sit back, and people that sit far from the host are told to move forward. You remember that story? We're also, we just heard a story of two people that go into the temple to pray. One of them goes up front and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, that I give a tenth of all that I possess, that I pray all the time, that I'm excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not like this sinner in the back. And in the back, there is this tax collector, this sinner, who doesn't even think he can approach the, the, the altar, beats his chest, says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one that goes away justified. So that's, that's also part of the context here, the posture in which you come to Jesus. So Jesus is he's drawing on the Ten Commandments, but he's not choosing them all. Did you notice that? You know the commandments. And then he chooses the last five. Why? Does anybody know? Look, the, the, the Ten Commandments are broken into two sections. One is vertical. The first four commandments are totally vertical. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart. No, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. That's about us. This is vertical, right? The second half of the Ten Commandments is horizontal. It's about our relationships with each other. It has to do with justice, with wholeness, with the Hebrew concept of shalom, like right relationships with each other. That's why we don't commit adultery. That's why we don't steal. That's why we don't kill each other. Can we just agree it's hard to have right relationships with people that might kill you? This is, this is what lying and adultery and, 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 and an inequity between us, brokenness between us. Why do you think Jesus chooses to talk to this guy about the second set of commandments, not the first? So when Jesus said, look, the whole, command, the whole law is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole, what he means is that the, the, all the commandments are summed up in those two axes. Those two axes. Axesis? Axesis? Axi? I don't think that's correct. Those two. Uh, they're, they're, but he only brings up the second set. Now you tell me, do, do we think that he brought up the second set because those are the ones the guy has always kept his whole life? Just turn to your neighbor and, and answer that question. Do you think that this, Jesus is bringing up the second set because that is the root of his righteousness? In other words, this guy, he kind of has kept those things his whole life. Or is Jesus bringing up that second set because that's precisely the ones he has not kept? Just turn to somebody and tell them what you think. Come on, don't be scared. You have to, you have to vote. You have to pick a side. All right, let's see. Let's do consensus here. This is like theology by democracy. 
Hermeneutics by democracy. Who thinks that Jesus is touching on this thing, the, bringing up the second side, the, the human, the relational side, because the guy has not lived that his whole life? Who's on that side? All right, and who thinks, no, he's bringing those up because that is, he can say, yeah, that, those are the bits I've done. Who thinks that? Oh, interesting, okay. Huh. Do I have to be the tiebreaker? Is that, is that what that is? Yes, maybe. I mean, let, let's, 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 let, let me ask you this other question. Why does, Jesus, why does Jesus have an issue with him calling him good teacher? Yeah, it's almost, maybe it goes back to something that Trisha said. It's almost like this guy is coming into the conversation with like, look, I'm a good guy, you're a good guy. The, 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 in other words, Jesus starts with this guy with the doctrine of sin. Before we can have any question about how you get into the kingdom of heaven, we first have to settle the issue of what's called the doctrine of sin, which is you are not a good person. And don't call me good. Even though Jesus actually is good, he's like, why are you calling me good? In other words, you're, you're walking up to a teacher, a man, a human being, and you're using the word good because you believe that that's possible. You believe that there's good people and bad people. And you actually believe you're one of the good people. That's the problem. This is why the guy has no problem, like a complete straight face when he says to Jesus, all of these I have kept since I have a boy. Really? You're going to, Jesus comes up to you and says, come on, let's talk about the commandments, all the things that God has told us to do. And your response to him is going to be, I've done all of those. That's, that's a set. That guy has a set on him. Brass, titanium. Sorry, that's crass. That's what happens when you don't prepare. It's what happens when you do prepare too, but. I mean, think of, the, think of the audacity to say to Jesus, yeah, totally. You've probably kept those commandments and so have I. You're good, I'm good. People, I, think, I think of myself as good. And Jesus already has a problem with that. He starts with the doctrine of sin. And then I think because of that, because Jesus wants to talk about, do, do you consider yourself good? Do you consider yourself a good person? And then he exposes that he does. He does. He thinks that he has kept the heart of the law towards other human beings since he was a young man. And Jesus only doesn't want to talk to him about his, 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 his observation of the Sabbath. He doesn't want to talk to him about his, his, whether he's ever taken the Lord's name in vain or what his prayer life is like. He wants to talk to him about how he is with other human beings. And this is where we get into the problem of wealth. Because is it possible, this is, this is the deep, dark, penetrating difficult question that this text brings to us. Is it actually possible to live a life hoarding extreme amounts of wealth while other people around you suffer and say that you have kept the heart of the law towards other human beings? Is that possible? Is it possible to say, I'm going to keep all of this stuff for me while other people suffer and I could alleviate their suffering, but I'm not going to, and yet to somehow believe in your own righteousness that you're a good person, that you're, you're upholding the justice part of the law. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out. So when he says to him, okay, fine, one thing you still lack. There's one thing you lack. Show me, show me that you have kept all of these things since you were a boy. And I think that's part of what's being uncovered here is that the guy who walks up and everyone's probably thinking, now, now here's a good guy. Successful, look at him. 
put together, never said a wrong thing. You know, his mother must be so proud. Not broken, not a sinner, not the kind of person that comes to Jesus. And this guy, it just doesn't work. His self-righteousness and the righteousness of Jesus are incompatible. They can't find reconciliation together. And Jesus isn't trying to be mean about it. I actually think there's a kind of generosity from Jesus to say, here's what you need to do. He's not trying to put him down. He's not trying to say, please, don't come in here acting all self-righteous. I'll embarrass you in front of everybody. He's, he's saying, look, there is a way to be righteous, and you're very, very far from it. Here's how you do it. I think Jesus is going right to the point of where he thinks he is most righteous to show him that he hasn't kept the first commandments either. That actually he does not love the Lord his God because he loves money. And in point of fact, you don't love your neighbor and you don't actually love God. You have not brought honor to his name in the earth because you have hoarded for yourself wealth and kept it from the needs of others. This is part of his exposing. But he's not doing it in a harsh way. This is really interesting to me. He's not coming at him with guns blazing. It's almost like he wants to, again, this is soteriological, he wants to save him. It's the, I think the whole text turns on this moment of sadness. Because it could go another way. He could say, okay, well, if that's what it takes, I will gladly do that. It's like there, there is this moment in this guy's life, and so there is in ours, where God asks us to do something, calls us to that one thing that we have yet do, to do, that we won't do. This line we've drawn in the sand, they say, God, I'll do all of this, but not that, not more than that, only to this. Don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to go that far. And it's that place, it's that request, it's that, it's that command, however you want to say it. It's that, it's that, it's that uh, uh, inter interchange to say, okay, I'm going I'm to move from here to there. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. It's, that, it's at that place, that junction, that nexus where we either get joy or sadness. And it's, what do you believe? Where do you believe joy comes from? Where do you believe sadness comes from? So he's sad because he can't trust that Jesus is telling him to do something that will be awesome. He doesn't believe that if he sold all of his possessions and gave them to the poor, he would come out on the other side of that a better man. Joyful, actually. And the irony is, he thinks this stuff is what makes him happy, or at least he believes it's too painful to let it go. It's too sad. And it really is his sadness which sends him to hell. It's this, it's this I cannot believe that there could be joy in the relinquishing of this thing that God is asking me to relinquish. I started thinking about... Um, because people are starting to, to knock on our door. They're starting to come to us from around the country, around the world, really, and say, okay, tell us, tell us how we can do something similar in our city, you know, like a community of missionaries and maybe like a, a different sort of structure, which is a, a church structure, which is about empowerment or whatever. It's interesting. So people come to us. So Jeremy, Stacy, some of us are working on trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we codify who we are, what we've done, what we've learned in these last 10 years, you know? And there are definitely moves to make. There are tactics to be adopted. But 
I don't know, it's, it's occurring to me recently that before any of that works, before any of that matters, actually, if the people who are coming to us and saying, we want to lead, we want to see something like this happen in our city, if they are not ready to give every single thing they have up, to throw it all away, I mean, to put it all on the altar to be burned, it doesn't matter what tactics we give them, they won't see something happen in their city. Like, movement, the movement of God and of His Spirit is not possible. You, you cannot call to yourself radical people if you yourself will not be radical. And yet we have people who, they live comfortable lives and have their, you know, soccer practice and, and home by five and they're lovely people, really, truly lovely people and I just think I was talking to Jeremy about this I'm just thinking Jeremy it's not going to happen because they want radical people they want people like you who are just ready to throw their life away for the poor for the needy on the edges on the margins they want a, a movement of people like that but they won't be that person It's making me think, okay, what do we say to them? And I feel like we, there has to be a conversation exactly like this that happens between us, all of us, and Jesus if we want to see something break loose in our lives. There is that one thing for you. There is that one thing for you. And fine, maybe it isn't actually about money because there, there is a camp of people that want to interpret this text and say, we're all supposed to actually give away all our money to the poor. Most, most Americans can't go there. They can't stomach even the possibility that that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, fine. So then we say, no, no, Jesus knew this man's heart and so he was just speaking. He knew that, that wealth was his idol and so therefore that's why he put his finger on that button. Fine. If that's what our interpretation is, fine, so be it. Maybe in heaven one day we'll realize that wasn't, that wasn't the correct interpretation but let's say let's just say for a second it is fine then what is that for you you tell me if you cannot articulate what it is for you that thing which God put his finger on and said this one thing you lack do you know what that is and can you point to it in your life which says this doesn't make any sense to anyone I know look if you have not upset your parents or, or your or your like sensible friends ever in your life there's something missing. You're just like this guy. There's got to be something in your life that God has put his finger on that you have no explanation for why you do it other than to obey him. Maybe it's taking in, I don't know. Oh God, it came back on. <laughs> That's my one thing. That's easy. I mean, I, I, think about, I think about the story of my own life, the, the course of my own life. I think about, you know, I don't know, choosing to move into the poorest, highest crime neighborhood in Tampa when we first moved to Tampa. I think about choosing to live with other people in community, to not just have my own space, but to open up my life to other people. And that's how I've lived for 25 years. I think about our choice to go and live among the very poor in the Philippines before the, the underground was born. I think about being a, taking kids into our home, being foster parents. 
I think about taking elderly into our home for years, just someone poor and old and dying who needed a place. And this, it's just getting, it's like louder and louder. It's like a, it is like a death ray. Does someone want to help me, Elisa? Look at that. Thank you, Elisa. It's like it's, it's vengeful. It's like it's, you turn me off and now I'm going to make you pay. There it is. Thank you. I can't believe that wasn't bothering you at all. That's, it was a little bit okay, to be honest. I mean, what is that thing for you? What, can you point to it? And if you say, Brian, I can't. I'm feeling very uncomfortable right now because I can't point to that. Here's the thing. Particularly Westerners, Americans, we have this thing called loss aversion. We read a text like this. We read it from the eyes of what we lose, what we give up. And it's the wrong way to read it. It's so the wrong way to read it. It's the wrong way to read Jesus. Because when you interact with Jesus and he says, son, daughter, give that up. Do you not understand that this is the one that knows you, loves you, made you? If he's saying give it up, you, what do you trust more than him in this life? Can you not? You, it's, a, it's a certain kind of insanity that says, I, I, don't, I think that's bad. You're telling me to let it go and I can't let it go because I can't, I can't lose that thing. It means too much to me. And so what we end up doing is we end up trading. There's an exchange being happening. Because of our loss of version, we exchange the presence of Jesus himself in our lives for that thing. Ask yourself, whatever it is, maybe it's where you live. You say, look, I'll be generous, I'll help people, I'll do so, but I never want to live in another country. I'm I'm saying maybe even today God's going to say, you need to open up your heart and your mind to that possibility. That you're actually supposed to live in Turkey. Or Iran. I mean, if all of our hearts don't say at some level, okay, Lord, if that's what you want, you, you got it. Because I know that that's where joy is for me. Because that's where the presence of Jesus would be. Uh, there was, I, you know, we have, I don't know if you, you, you know this or not. Some of you wouldn't because you're excellent drivers. But in, in this country, if you, if you have a violation, a driving violation, they give you points. Are you aware of that? You get points on your license. Well, the problem is, uh, we, we as Americans, we like the idea of accumulating things. We like the idea of, like, getting points. So that doesn't work for us. It's like getting points is almost like a good thing. Like, how many points do you have? I have 10. Well, I have 15, you know. I'm this close to being suspended, you know. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not, that doesn't work on us. Interestingly, if you look at a country like Italy, Italy does the opposite. They give you points and they deduct points. And that actually has a higher success rate in terms of the psychology of it because people don't want to lose points. Do you understand? Those are my points. Oh, no. I, loss aversion. I don't want to lose my points. These are my points. But we have the, kind of the opposite problem. We're sort of proud. My son is so proud how many points he has. Like, I got more points, you know. I'm winning. Look at all these points I have. I have more points than you. Uh, th- there's something in our, in, our, in our psyche that doesn't, we don't want to let go of what we think we have. And yet the kingdom comes through letting go. Jesus, the presence of Jesus comes in the letting go. I think there's so much wrong with this guy's life, his spiritual life, that Jesus has to prescribe this extreme, I mean like a whole life cleanse, right? It's like you gotta you got you got just sell it all, dude, and then come follow me. And he's sad because he won't, he won't make that exchange. 
And we don't realize that, that in, in our lives, these exchanges are offered to us all the time. And maybe for you it is money or it has something to do with money. But, but maybe it has something to do with where you live or, or who you allow in your house or, 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 or how much time you, you spend doing your hobbies or whatever it is for you. But I'm asking you this morning to ask yourself, to let Jesus ask you that question, this one thing you lack, to actually put his finger on something in your life. That, that all the people that you know would be like, why do you do that? That makes no sense. And your only answer has to be because... It's that place of breaking and giving and trusting and experiencing the joy of the presence of Jesus. It's something he asked me to do. Who then can be saved? That's that. This is it's, it's the question that's being asked. It's soteriology. So then who can be saved? Because the problem that everyone's having standing around it's not that a broken person or a sinful person has come to Jesus and Jesus is saying, look, I can do something for you. Everyone gets that. It's that somebody good, I mean, the best we have, the best representative of humanity has walked up to Jesus. He's good at everything he does. He's probably handsome. He's got everything together. And if Jesus is like, this dude has to give it all up, then they're asking, then who? Who of us? We're just regular people. Who of us can be saved at all? And then, then, of course, he says this thing, what's impossible with man is possible with God. You know what's interesting is that we have this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And then we have this, so, so these two men, one who thinks themselves righteous and stands before God as if they are, and one who knows he's not righteous. But listen, in that story, the Pharisee would not necessarily have had any money. Do you understand? The tax collector, this is where it gets interesting, the tax collector would have been wealthy. So the tax collector in, in the first Matthew 18 or, or Luke 18 story is the hero in a sense. He goes away justified. Even though he's rich, he sees himself as a sinner. Can you understand? And he says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And so you have this, this, this contrast, this juxtaposition between a self-righteous person who thinks they keep the law and a rich person who is not keeping the law, but knows he's not. Then you have this story. This um, interaction with an actual rich person who can't make that exchange, who can't give up, who does not see himself as a sinner and is therefore condemned. And then, I mean, just a few verses from now, we get this story. There was a, a, a wealthy man, a rich, another rich man, on, just on the heels of this story, another rich man who was a tax collector called Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is some sort of conflation of these two people. He, he, just like the story of the banquet, he does not think he can come up to Jesus. He keeps his distance from Jesus, but he wants something from Jesus. He knows himself as a sinner. He knows himself as being vile, a vile person. 
And so when Jesus is coming around, he wants to see him, so he climbs up a tree. Remember that? He's short. Remember, remember vacation Bible school or whatever you went to? One of the most profoundly important sociological texts in all of the Bible is the story of Zacchaeus, and we've reduced it to a short man getting into a tree. It's, it's an abomination. Listen, vacation Bible school is not helping the world, uh, if that's what we're teaching. I'll tell you why it's so important, because what you have is you have a rich man who knows, who says, I have to stand far off from God because I'm sinful. Rich and sinful. Rich and aware of his sinfulness. And when Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, remember what he says? Does anyone remember? We're still dialoguing here. I know I'm doing most of the talking, but does anyone remember? What does he say? Come down. Today I'm going to eat in your house. I knew you guys knew it. See, Vacation Bible School, it came through for you. <laughs> this, this story, this first story, is about this man coming to Jesus. What do I have to do? He, he puts himself forward. He's the Pharisee in, in the first, in the temple story. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I do this and I do that. I think I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner. And Jesus said, yeah, but what about your wealth? What about that idol? And then, and then you have this other rich man, Zacchaeus, who sees himself as the, as the broken one. And he hides from Jesus and he steps back and Jesus comes to him. Jesus calls to him. Jesus invites him. Jesus says, I want to come into your life. I want to come into your house. Jesus offers this, this broken, yes, wealthy, also, also unjust, very unjust, more probably than the rich young ruler. He offers him relationship. And because he does that, because Jesus says, I want to eat with you. I want to know you. I want to live. And of course, we're talking about first century Palestine where, where the offer to eat with someone means, means I want to be your friend for life. It's not just have you over for dinner. This is, this, this is about I want you to welcome me into your home, which means we are like family from here on. And what does Zacchaeus do? The second that Jesus enters into his life, the presence of Jesus into his life, the incarnation of Jesus into his brokenness, into his flawed, unjust choices. What happens to Zacchaeus? This is what he says. This is what he says voluntarily without even being asked. Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm going to give away half of all that I have to the poor. That's the first thing he says. Now, you have to understand, for Zacchaeus... The money that he would have taken as a tax collector, we're talking about not just the IRS here or something. We're talking about uh, a, a, a confederate with the Roman Empire. We're talking about someone who was abusing or exploiting his own people, taking massive tariffs on top of Roman taxes to, to, to line his own pockets. He was not just getting rich off the poor. He was getting rich off the poor who lived right around him. Do you understand? His wealth would have been a direct uh, uh, offense to the people who lived around him because they would have known as his wealth grew it came out of our pockets do you understand and so the first thing that happens in the heart of Zacchaeus this rich man when he's offered the presence of Jesus in joy is to say I'm just going to give away half of it and of course what he means is back to the people from whom I stole it 
And then he says this, and whoever I've cheated, because he knows he has, whoever I've cheated, I'll give four times what I took. Four times what I took. Well, that's soteriology writ large. That is, that is, the, that is the, the, the salvation of the kingdom. That's not just about one sinner being saved. That's about the world being changed. That's about justice entering into this broken, dark world because one person of privilege actually entered into a real relationship with Jesus. And you know what Jesus says when his response is? He says, today, salvation has come to this household. Soteriology. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. Today, salvation. Of course, I think part of what Jesus means is this is the house of Zacchaeus and today, salvation has come into this household. Jesus himself is the salvation. For Zacchaeus, for this rich ruler, for you, for me, you're being offered a relationship with Jesus still. The presence of Jesus in your life. And if he's put his finger on something and said, give that up, you ought to do it. Maybe you should do it because it's just. Maybe because we already, all of us in this room have more than we need. All of us in this room have more than the rest of the world, the lion's share of the world. The church in America, the average Christian in American churches give about 2% of their income. That's reprehensible. We say we care about justice. We don't care about justice. Not if that's how we give. Not if our brothers and sisters all over the world have nothing. Of that money, of that 2% that we give to the church, that American Christians give to the church about 2% of their income, of that 2%, guess how much of it goes back to us, back to programs and things that serve us? About 95%. So of the 2%, only about 5% actually goes to missional causes or to the poor or to things around the world or to things even in our own city that serve the poor. We're not a generous people. So lest we think that somehow this thing that Jesus puts his finger on for this rich ruler, well, that doesn't apply to us. Maybe it's something else for us. Mm, don't rush too quickly past that. I know I said three waves, but I'm feeling like that's enough. Um, Jason, you want to come up just for a second? I'm going to close. I th I'm, 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 I'm thinking, this is what's on my mind right now. I'm thinking about Exodus 40. 